here protecting people like yourself. I have some news for you, we're here to defend wealth. I have some news for you, we're here to defend wealth. Tra la la la! Let's go. This is 102.3 WHIV LPFM in New Orleans. We are Radio Nola HIV with programming dedicated to human rights and social justice. WHIVFM.org. We honor independent voices. End all wars. It is a pleasure, really is a pleasure to have, uh, and you are listening to NOLA Matters. This is Health as a Human Right. And it is a pleasure to have Aaron Hurst, uh, who is one of the foremost experts on the science of purpose of work, on the phone with me. First, let me make sure that we're on. Aaron, do you hear me? I certainly do. Great. Let me turn you up just a little bit here and let's get your volumes. And uh, Aaron, you're calling us in, uh, from Seattle, right? That's right. Yep. Awesome. Great. All right. I think the levels are good. I got you turned up and great. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I've been looking forward to it uh, for some time now. So Aaron Hurst is uh, one of the foremost experts on the science of the purpose of work and in 2014 brought global awareness to the rise of the fourth economic era in history, the purpose economy. He is the CEO and co-founder of Imperative, the technology platform for leaders in the new economy. Previously, as the founder of the Taproot Foundation, Aaron catalyzed $15 billion of pro bono service market. He's a third generation graduate of the University of Michigan. You can find more information uh, at uh, with uh, uh, Aaron's uh, work. He tweets at Aaron underscore Hertz. That's A-A-R-O-N underscore H-U-R-S-T and more information about Imperative. His company can be found at imperative.com. Aaron, thank you so much uh, for uh, spending the hour with us. No, I'm glad we could finally do it. Yeah, so there's so much to uh, start uh, with, uh, and uh, as we usually do on, on uh, Health is a Human Right, Null Matters, is basically just maybe tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got to where you are. Um, I was aware of uh, Taproot Foundation and, and I thought that what you were doing with that was excellent. And then, of course, you... Uh, you know, you stepped aside from that, and and uh, I think that was part of maybe your move, and then you recreated or started the whole process with Imperative, and so definitely would love to hear that trajectory. No, absolutely. So uh, my professional trajectory started in high school. I had my business when I was 16, um, then went to the University of Michigan, spent a lot of my time as a student uh, working on a program that I helped develop uh, that took Michigan students out to teach creative writing at a local uh, correctional facility at a local jail. And that was really the focus of my undergraduate uh, experience uh, was really building that program and really thinking about how to have service become part of how we learn. Um, I've always been a big believer in experiential learning and also felt like, why do we spend so much time wasting in classrooms when we could actually be out there, you know, doing real work? Uh, there's so much need in the community and you're writing papers, you're doing all this work that never goes anywhere. Why not actually like, do something that matters. Uh, graduated from Michigan and went to uh, Chicago and worked in uh, inner city ed for a couple of, for actually it was about a, a half a year. It didn't last long. I got really frustrated by sort of lack of uh, capacity in these organizations that I was working at. They were doing the most important work, but they were so under-resourced and had given up on really fundamentally making the change. I know you and I have talked about this before, but the changes that are needed in the world are really significant. And yes. uh, I think when you're just trying to sort of scratch the surface, it's not a very satisfying feeling. So really wanted to figure out how do you do more than that? And went and uh, moved to Silicon Valley and spent five years working uh, in tech startups and trying to understand how do they scale? How do they really grow to make a bigger impact, um, to punch above their weight as it were? And can't really understand that one of the main issues was that nonprofits didn't have access to the same marketing, tech, HR, um, and other sort of core functional skill sets that companies do, especially startups. And where startups would hire these people you know, way uh, before they needed them so they could build uh, to go quickly, 
Nonprofits often ended up hiring people way after the need. And this was really creating a poverty mentality in the sector. And um, I came to realize that there was a huge opportunity to help, you know, increase uh, support for the nonprofit sector, to support social justice. Um, if I could rally the business community to not just volunteer with traditional corporate volunteer programs, many of which just waste nonprofits' time, um, but actually have companies building nonprofit infrastructure, helping them with uh, marketing, tech, HR, et cetera. And spent about 12 years doing that with Taproot, which you mentioned earlier. And we you know, built it out as a national and global program and then turned it into an overall marketplace working with the White House um, to really make pro bono work a much greater part of what it means to be you know, a professional. And in that process, I really um, became fascinated with why the hell were these people working for free? I mean, they were spending five hours a week volunteering, doing pro bono work on top of a 60-hour-a-week job. Like, why did they do it? What made it so rewarding? And as I began to study that, I started to really understand what purpose at work is all about and what fulfillment truly is about and realized that uh, Tapford Foundation um, was well on its way and was in its adolescence years and it was on its way to turn into you know, an ongoing organization and wanted to start something new to really focus in on how do we actually take what I learned at Taproot and make all work as fulfilling as that pro bono work? So that's sort of what brings you up to uh, today, more or less. Wow. So there, <laughs> there's so much there to, to, to unpack. There was just a couple things I wanted to, I mean, it, sure. it, it, uh, I mean, so you started, you said you started your first business at 16. Yep. What were you doing? <laughs> so um, my stepmother at the time was very adamant that uh, we had to work so you didn't become entitled and, uh, the only job around was McDonald's and I tried it for a week and got badly burnt and injured. And I was like, this is not something that I want to do. And I had a personal passion as a kid about baseball um, and baseball cards. And uh, I was at a baseball card show that my dad took me to and I saw a flyer that said you could have your own table uh, at one of these shows and sell cards and buy cards. And you could buy cards from people at you know, wholesale rates. And I just thought this was the coolest thing ever. And, uh, you know, fast forward six months and every weekend was at these baseball card shows. And um, we were bringing in um, many, many multiples of what I was making uh, at McDonald's I'm and sure. learning all about, all about business and about how do you, how do you get someone to buy a baseball card that maybe otherwise wasn't a hot one learning? How do you buy at wholesale um, and figure out how to make investments so that you can, um, you know, turn a profit on the other end. Right, buy bigger uh, and better. It is fabulous. So, I mean, you were basically learning the basic skills of entrepreneurship at, at a young age yep. then, right? Exactly. So then you then parlay this into going to uh, University of Michigan, and uh, how did that get parlayed into starting a program for teaching, did you say creative writing uh, skills yep. to uh, folks that were incarcerated? So I first, there was an existing program there um, around this topic, and uh, I've always been really intrigued by criminal justice system. My top value, if you do a values inventory, is freedom. And um, to me, the idea of losing your freedom has always been something that just like haunts me to my core. And I realized, you know, there are people who do horrible things, but, you know, many of us do small things here and there. And um, it's just sort of luck that some people end up in prison and other people don't. And really was intrigued by you know, what actually, I'd never met someone who'd been in prison or that I knew of, and I really was curious just what, what life behind bars was like. So I volunteered for this program, and in that experience just saw how much more like, I learned from that experience than I was learning in a classroom. And it really inspired me to go back and say, let's rally a bunch of faculty and create an interdisciplinary program where we can get students to go out, not just to this prison, but to a bunch of different facilities in the uh, Detroit area. And really think about how to tie it back to actual topics that we're learning so that you can reflect on, you know, sociology, teaching, creative writing, um, but also things like organizational development and teams. I mean, taking a team of people into a sort of threatening environment like a prison was an incredible way for people to reflect on what teamwork is all about. So just I, I, to me, it was an incredible opportunity to mash up all these different ideas into one experience. So to a certain degree, you took kind of like your entrepreneur kind of experience that, uh, as a teenager that may have been more kind of based on just kind of pure capitalistic kind of, you know, principles, but then you turned it into something that was a little bit more that had some more meaning behind it. Is, is that what happened when you got to college? Yeah, I don't know that honestly it was like more meaning. An entrepreneur, at least in my experience, and I'll just speak for myself, you start off with just the question, what if? Right. And you sort of walk around the world sort of what if? 
And some what ifs seem like more commercial than others. And you know, I think as a kid, I said, whoa, I just saw that guy bought a baseball card from somebody else for half the list price because he was able to buy it wholesale because he just spent $20 to rent that table. What if I could have my own table? Um, I think with the prison program, I sort of said, what if um, this experience of going to a prison could actually be something that could a new way to, to learn, um, service learning? What if we could actually change the way education works by combining these two things? Sort of, there's a chocolate and peanut butter moment. Right. So um, I'd like great, to say two, it was like two great tastes that taste great together. Exactly. Um, so yeah, I mean, one was commercial, but I think it, to me they were both. It's all play. Right. No, I all, totally see what fun. you're saying. Yeah, I totally see what you're saying. So then, then, then you said that you went to uh, Silicon Valley, and then you started Taproot after that. Uh, because yeah, I did a quick. Quick stint in uh, Chicago inner city ed right after college before going to Silicon Valley. Um, sort of following on that idea that, you know, uh, loving education, that's stuff I had done with the prison at Michigan, um, but just got disillusioned very quickly. I, I could imagine. And what I'm fascinated by is because I, I run a nonprofit and, and as, yep. a, as a physician, um, I have zero I probably shouldn't admit this on air and to everybody, but I don't have the greatest skills to run a nonprofit. I, you know, I can sling antimicrobials or antivirals like it's nobody's business, but the starting the nonprofit was kind of more of a, you know, what if I took music and mixed it with HIV awareness? Yeah. And could I increase HIV awareness in the community? That was my what if moment. And then, you know, flash forward, you know, seven years later, I have an FCC license to start WHIV. And so it's a, a lot of learning as you go and and one of the things that I have learned uh, especially uh, with my board uh, and uh, and and my wife Liana who has taught me a lot about basically just keeping your hand out and asking for money whenever possible that was that was a skill that I never really had and so you talked about something that I thought was interesting when you said with Taproot which was you kind of learned how to build a nonprofit infrastructure now in New Orleans we are I think we have the highest density of nonprofits per capita uh, if not the country for sure if not the the world then for sure the country we there you know a large part of the new orleans social structure is built on going to fundraiser after fundraiser after fundraiser in fact it's not surprising that if you go out a couple times a week in new orleans uh you're probably going out a majority of the time to, to different fundraisers um and so can we talk about what you did with Taproot and that whole idea of nonprofit infrastructure? And why is it that there's the difference between the, 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 the for-profit infrastructure uh, uh, economic structures that exist versus the, the nonprofit? And then that's going to ultimately get us into imperative, I would imagine, because that really taps into the type of people who go into one type of work or go into the other. Does that, does that make sense or is that? Yeah, no, it's a bunch, bunch of different topics, but sure. Um, and then before you so, do, Aaron, before you do, yeah. let me just quickly say, if you're tuning in, you are listening to Noel Matters. This is Health is a Human Right. This is 102.3 WHIV. My name is Mark Allendary. I uh, have on air with me Aaron Hurst, who is one of the foremost experts on the science of the purpose of work. Uh, you can find more information uh, and follow Aaron at Aaron underscore Hurst. Uh, and his uh, website is imperative.com. I'm sorry, Aaron, go ahead. I know I just, I put out a lot of topics there, but I kind of just was setting the agenda for maybe the next sure. part of the conversation. Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of, so you go to a lot of fundraisers, et cetera, right? So you're up at a gala and there's someone on stage and they say, um, we've got this kid who is, you know, starving or has a disease, et cetera. And if someone can donate $50 like we, or $1,000, whatever it is, we can help them. And you're like, I got to I got to do that. That's like, I got to help this person. It's like so compelling. And they're right there. And I want to help. Um, if that same person got up instead and said, um, our organization really badly needs a new HR policy manual. It's going to be fantastic. It's going to help us have better uh, uh, policies. It's going to enable employees to be able to get more done. It's going to help uh, build uh, this organization so that we can make an impact for years to come. Which one's going to get more donations? Right. right? The, the compelling story. And I think. <laughs> and that's sort of the core challenge with nonprofit infrastructure is that, you know, even though I'm an expert in this topic, I still like emotionally always want to give to the, you know, to help with the impact versus building the capacity of the organization. The same thing's true when you look at government funding, when government looks at um, nonprofits, it's considered, you know, overhead is considered a bad thing. Um, overhead is considered the sign of dysfunction. 
Um, in fact, nonprofits overhead is substantially less than corporations. And yet, you know, the narrative is uh, nonprofits are bloated and companies are efficient. And it's actually, in most cases, quite the opposite. Um, so we just have developed this narrative that's, um, I think, honestly, has a large, I mean, I know your social justice is a big part of your um, passion and purpose. I think a lot of it is like a, is tied to racism and to sort of stereotypes of um, minorities and that nonprofits are associated with those stereotypes um, and that companies are associated with white men and they have the stereotypes associated with that. And as a result, there's a lot of misunderstanding of what's actually going on. So um, that's sort of getting at your first part of the question. Right. I, does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, essentially what I was trying to get to is the, uh, I, I mean, so I guess, it, it, you know, as I'm treading lightly on what you were just saying, the, yep. The is it that the folks that are in the nonprofit world are uh, have a different sense of how sustainability in business happens, or is there just uh, there may not necessarily like in my case? Let me just say in my case, I went to medical school. I didn't go to business school, so I didn't learn. I don't. I still to this day don't even know how to look at a spreadsheet. You know, I don't know. I don't know some of the basics of how these things uh, work. Is, is the nonprofit world kind of more full of people who are uh, practicing their their passion, uh, be it whatever that passion may be? In my case, it's social justice uh, and and business be damned. Versus those that are in the for profit world tend to be very much more disciplined with the business. And the managing yeah, I, don't think the I don't think there's much truth to that, to be honest. Um, I think we tend to think about business. We think about, you know, where my wife works at Amazon or you think about these huge companies. But the reality is um, the person who opens a pizzeria or you know, a cafe in your neighborhood in New Orleans, um, that's a business. And for most of those people, it's the love of interaction with customers, for love of pizza, cooking, et cetera. And they might be an awesome baker, um, candlestick maker, whatever it is that they are. And they love the love that craft. Um, doesn't mean that they have any better acumen at spreadsheets than you do. Um, I think it's uh, actually just much more of an issue of when you have someone who's a practitioner of their craft, um, trying to also be a uh, leader in a in a business. Um, that those aren't always the same skill sets. Um, and I don't think it's a nonprofit for profit issue because again, there are plenty of you know small businesses that are exactly like you know what you describe and. Uh, they're trying to make a living, but they also love what they do. Sure. So then what, so Taproot then was a foundation that did pro bono work then essentially yep. or matched nonprofits with the ability of folks to do pro bono work. Is that, did, did I, did, do I have that mission? I don't want to put that mission into, uh, I don't want. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, in a nutshell, yes. I mean, it was a step further, which is less about matching. It was actually, we operated like a consulting firm. For nonprofits, where nonprofits would come to us for services um, that we would manage for them, and then we recruited pro bono talent to fulfill that. Because just matching most of the time wasn't enough; um, it needed a level of management and support. So think of it more as a giant consulting firm that just happens to have their staff be folks that are doing it part time and not paid. Right, and this would be uh, so. And then I guess this comes into kind of the work that you're doing with Imperative, and uh, because I would ask then, why would folks do uh, unpaid work? Yep. And before I jump to that, okay, Marcolin, I also just uh, for those of you on the air that are you know work at nonprofits, strongly encourage you to check out Taproot Foundation's site, taprootfoundation.org. Um, it's a great source of finding people who have signed up and say that they want to contribute their professional skills to help your organization. Um, and the flip side of those people out there who have incredible talents that they would like to be sharing. Um, it's a, you know, uh, incredible platform. So just, I know a lot of times when we're talking about Taproot, people are like, how do I get access to those services? And I just wanted to point people there. Right. You know, actually, Aaron, before you answer that question, let me just ask you this. What, what was your aha moment with, creating the model for taproot you know as i as i kind of pick it around in your brain what was your what if moment or you know do you remember the moment when all of a sudden the idea of taproot kind of came to you yeah so i was um i had left nonprofits in chicago with the intent to come back and wanted to go to silicon valley to learn how you know companies work and uh, I didn't have a specific model of how I then wanted to go back to the nonprofit sector. And I started interviewing at different nonprofits in San Francisco and saying, hey, you know, I'm 
I've got these skills, I have this experience, like how could I be helpful to you? Um, what jobs would be, you know, at the time I was thinking I was going to go back with a job and what jobs would be, you know, appropriate for me. And the general answer I got from everyone was I would love a little bit of your time, but I don't really have a job for you as a full-time job. And I would explore what are the, you know, what are the smaller projects that you want done? And they would go through the same list. Everyone I talked to had the same list of things they wanted to get done. And that's really when that light bulb moment happened, which was there's an opportunity here to get all of my friends from startups and companies to now go do these, you know, part-time gigs for free. Um, and that when I talked to my friends and companies, they said, yeah, most of the volunteering I've done sucks. Like I really, um, it feels like field trips to see poor people. It doesn't feel like I'm really making an impact. It doesn't feel like I'm really valued. You know, if someone actually wanted to use my professional skills and like took that time seriously, I'd be all over it. Right. That, that makes, yeah, that makes all the sense in the world. I mean, and, and by skills we're talking, I mean, when we say pro bono, I mean, sometimes that may mean uh, legal, but I mean, these are anything from accounting to any, any other professional sure. sort of skills. It's anything well. you would get paid to do, right. Right. Um, as a professional skill. And it has been part of the legal, the, I don't know if you know the history of the pro bono and the legal profession. It's been around for a while, but it really it was the civil rights movement where um, president Kennedy called on the top law firms and said the civil rights laws are not going to actually ever mean anything unless they're enforced and our government can't enforce them. It was going to require uh, your attorneys to do pro bono work to enforce the new civil rights laws. And that's really where the whole pro bono ethic and the rise of you know awareness about pro bono, even in the legal profession, came from. So it's a relatively new phenomenon. Um, and what I was doing oh. actually is trying to take it from legal and say, how can we also do that in other professions? Can you imagine that happening in 2018? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, can, I mean, not around that. I mean, I think a lot of the law firms are incredibly motivated right now because they are um, so incensed at how little respect for the law there is right now and the respect for rights. Um, and I think there is if there is a way to channel that. And we saw a little bit of that around the refugee um, crisis. A lot of the law firms are just pouring tons of capital and people at trying to help people you know, with their, their claims. Um, and I think if there was a channel to help address some of these other incredible problems we have uh, the legal community always steps up and tries to do something it's just they need to have a channel and a clear thing to do um, it's some of the so many people go into law school for all the right reasons and leave and get a job to pay the law school bills but they still want to have that uh that impact and when you give them a chance man what a great community right that's the same way in medicine too by the way oh totally uh you know when you travel around the world you'll always find doctors from around the world except for the u.s because american doctors are stuck back at home uh paying off their their student loans where the rest of the world yeah, those no, student totally. loans are, you know and so that's something uh, i have noticed so do, do, do i remember this correctly or did i once read a book that you had written about pro bono and the the history of pro bono, or did I just? I uh, have the history, but I've done. I did a book that was uh, called "The Power of Pro Bono," which is yeah. a sort of how-to book for nonprofits on how to secure and manage pro bono services. And then okay. uh, Kara, my wife, and I wrote a kids' book called "Mommy and Daddy Do It Pro Bono," right? Which was a, a, so I think I think I think it was the kids' that. book that I read. Yeah, I yeah. think that was uh, that was laying around once, and I picked it up and 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 read through it, and I and 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 I learned some of that history when you meant there was the history of the civil rights. Uh, was that some of that history in there as well? Because that did sound familiar when you were talking about it. That was it. in the, uh, I think that's in the power. That's probably power where I read that one as well. Book, if I recall. Got it. Um, a lot of that came up when I was, we were working with the white house and basically saying that just like the civil rights movement, there was sort of a call to arms for the legal profession that, um, the decline of the nonprofit sector since the Reagan administration, um, and it's not really the decline, it's not the right word for it, but basically the onus has been put on the nonprofit sector with the decline in the role of government in society. Right. It's put an incredible onus on the nonprofit sector to scale that was never really, it's not a sector that was ever designed to scale. Um, that was something that really was necessitated by Reaganomics and the sort of move to smaller government. And what we proposed to the White House was um, sort of a call to the corporate community to say, you know what, um, it's now your time to step up and we've got to help the nonprofit sector rise to this occasion because they're not going to be able to do it without your help. Right, right. That's yeah. That's amazing. If you're tuning in, you are listening to 102.3 WHIVLP FM. We are community radio dedicated to human rights and social justice. My name is Mark Allendary. You are listening to NOLA Matters: Health as a Human Right. I am talking to Aaron Hurst, who is one of the foremost experts on the science of purpose at work, and in 2014 brought global awareness to the rise of the fourth economic era in history, the purpose economy. He's the CEO and co-founder of Imperative, the technology platform for leaders in the new economy. 
Previously, as the founder of the Taproot Foundation, Aaron catalyzed $15 billion pro bono service market. He's a third generation graduate of the University of Michigan, and you can follow him on Twitter at Aaron underscore Hurst. That's A-A-R-O-N underscore H-U-R-S-T. And his website is imperative.com. So let's kind of shift the conversation into this fourth economic era in history, the purpose economy. What is what What, what does that mean? So what we've seen throughout history is that there's different fundamental uh, economies. We're not talking about like microeconomies, but like the broader macroeconomic eras. So, you know, as we moved out of being nomads and started settling down was the rise of the first economic era, which was the agrarian economy. Um, and that economy was all based on um, land ownership. It was about, uh, you know, power came from owning land and those who didn't own land just had to work the land for survival. Um, that evolved into the industrial economy. And the industrial economy is when we started using raw materials and um, raw materials started, and energy started becoming sort of the dominant uh, source of value. And we saw the rise of cities. We saw the rise eventually of factories and the rise of um, uh, unions, et cetera. And it was a fundamental shift. And then uh, we saw the rise about 50, 60 years ago of the information economy, which was uh, when we started actually moving from raw materials being sort of the core value creator in the world um, to it actually being information and knowledge. And we saw you know, the rise of the knowledge worker. We saw the rise of Silicon Valley. And that became the dominant source of uh, innovation and um, the economic engine of you know, the broader global economy. Um, what I put forward in my book and just now been, you know, embraced as a core concept from everywhere from the Times to um, Davos is that we're now entering sort of the fourth, a fourth economy, and that it's actually a human economy where uh, the needs of people for their fulfillment, their well-being, is where we're seeing innovation, and it's where we're seeing uh, economic decisions made. Uh, it's where uh, the workforce is changing, and it's where people's consumer behavior is changing. So, you know, the book really lays out the case for uh, the fact that we are now in the early stages of this uh, this new economy, and what are the implications for individuals, organizations, and then more broadly for society. It's a really exciting time. So, and to be clear, the, the the book here that we're talking about is called The Purpose Economy. Yes, that is true. Got it. Okay, and when was that published? That was back in 14, 2014. Got it. Got it. So eons ago. <laughs> By today's standards, right? And yep. and, uh, and so moving forward, I mean, how do you see kind of the... Uh, so, I mean, without with somebody who's not an economist, uh, but also someone who's very fascinated by it, how, how, does that, how does that break down into where we're at right now, moving forward in the future, and then ultimately getting us to how you started Imperative? Yeah, I mean, I think what we've, what we've seen uh, in the last you know, 20, 30 years is uh, the rise of... Uh, and you'll, you, you know this because of the field you're in, but um, biotech um, and the rise of uh, neuroscience and the understanding how the brain works. And we are now in a, we're on the cusp of sort of major changes in the way in which uh, people operate in the world and what we know about how people actually work. Um, this is such, an, I mean, just what's been discovered so far in understanding you know, the chemicals in our brain and um, what brings us a sense of reward, what brings us a sense of pleasure. These things are relatively new um, discoveries and they're really trying to affect how we're building products, services. Uh, they're affecting you know, what we're doing in terms of designing work, how we're designing education. Uh, we now have that ability to understand not just the world and the raw materials of the world, but the raw materials of you know, our insides, our soul, who we are as human beings. Uh, and that's leading to a tremendous amount of innovation around the workplace and around products and services. So when it comes to the work I do, uh, you know, leaving Taproot, writing the purpose economy, I've shifted my, my focus largely to how do we help people understand you know, what, what they're all about? How do we use positive psychology and what we know about neuroscience to help people look at their careers in a very different way? Look at their careers in terms of what is their purpose? And we now understand purpose not just to be about poetry and something that's spiritual, but we actually um, now understand why people have a purpose and how that purpose is defined by our psychological makeup and how to activate that in our work. So we can now completely approach our careers through the lens of purpose um, instead of just through the lens of, you know, say, being a professional or job title or um, sort of traditional career paths. We can actually now hack work to design it around positive psychology and neuroscience. 
Right. And I would also imagine that uh, if you can do something like that, that you will also have a, uh, a happier worker. Right, because rather than I mean, it, it you know it feels like it's you're taking a you know a square peg and putting it into a square hole. Whereas work kind of defined the worker. Now it sounds like, if I'm understanding correctly, that the worker gets to define the work. Is, is that yep. is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things I would modify there. I think one is it's not about happiness so much as it is about meaning and fulfillment. Which okay, I know so sound okay. like splitting hairs, but okay. they're actually pretty different. Okay, well, can you explain um, that then? Yeah, so. Happiness tends to be something that's about the moment. Uh, it's about something that's generally a fleeting, a fleeting emotion, and it generally doesn't have much of a sort of a residual impact. Fulfillment is a deeper, uh, a deeper feeling that's generally tied to connecting past, present, and future, um, and is about doing something that you fundamentally feel rewarding. Um, that is. Uh, helping you grow and stretch um, as a person. Um, and it's tied to these uh, neurotoxins. So you know, the sense of fulfillment really is coming from you know, oxytocin release, serotonin, uh, dopamine that are creating a sensation that the best way to describe it, to be honest with you, is the difference between, um, uh, you think about happiness as like Disneyland, you think about happiness as you know, those moments when you're just, it's like a, a sense of uh, Short-term euphoria. Right. It's um, like kind of like a, parenting is like fulfillment to me is much more like parenting. Like most of the time when I'm parenting, I'm not happy per se, um, but I'm deeply fulfilled and I wouldn't trade it for anything. And I think it's that. Um, so it, that it defines it. it. So t going to the neuro, uh, talking about the neurotransmitters, happiness would be more yep. like an instant rush of dopamine, whereas yep. fulfillment would be more of kind of low level, but more constant sustaining releases of serotonin and oxytocin. Yeah, and I think the dopamine, though, around, um, there's a lot of that around like, the sense of growth and curiosity um, that comes from that. Uh, but you're absolutely right. I think that you know, a lot of it has to do with relationships and about building uh, strong relationships that support us and that bring us uh, that depth of fulfillment and being able to have that oxytocin release, not just you know, with close friends, but actually being able to have that in the workplace. Right. So now tell me what, what, uh, when we talk about then, uh, kind of the work that you do. So, I mean, so if I were to, you know, ultimately what I'm trying to get to is, is how does this help on the larger scale? Like how would this be implicate, you know, implications for organizations for the work that you do? So sure. you, you, would somebody, would an organization come to you and then you do an evaluation of their, of their employees and then, or how, how does that work? Yeah. So, um, you know, we're, a, we're a B Corp and, uh, what does that mean? Technology uh, we are for benefit corporations, so okay. it's sort of a hybrid between, you know, recognizing that we are not about, you know, we're not a charity, we're not collecting donations, we do have, uh, you know, shareholder value, we do have um, equity in the company, and we are for profit, but that our primary goal is social impact. So it's a specific type of company. So, and that's, uh, that's, and that's really, called for benefit company? Yep, huh. a B Corp. B Corp. Okay. All right. Yep. And that's really the model I chose because uh, the limitations of a nonprofit around the ability to take on investment, the ability to create shareholder value um, was really limited. And this really was the best of both worlds. Okay. Um, so anyway, so we are, but our, our business is a technology business and the way companies work with us and nonprofits is they license our platform to generally integrate into programs they offer for managers and leaders uh, for their employees that they're trying to help them develop their careers. And it's mostly a, a personal discovery experience where people are leveraging our research and science to uncover what their personal uh, purpose is and to understand what that means in terms of, you know, how they show up and how they want to show up in their careers and what it means for them as leaders. So it's mostly about a, it's a self-discovery uh, experience that we're able to provide organizations to really help people understand that, yes, even though they're not a social worker, they can have purpose in their work, um, what that looks like and how to design your career around it. So this is, but this is something that, wow, I'm fascinated by this, Aaron. So the, and you, you, I mean, I mean, how did you fall into this? I mean, you, you came up obviously with this, uh, but this was something that, I mean, you were, doing taproot and then all of a sudden yep. just kind of you had another aha moment that shifted you over to the purpose economy and imperative yep it's a series of moments i think part of it for me is i'm always trying to find patterns in the world um, a lot of 
my entrepreneurship comes out of pattern recognition. And um, one of the things I was trying to figure out is why do some employees like to do certain types of volunteering and some other people don't want to do that kind of volunteering? Like there's, didn't seem like there was something that was universally fulfilling. Um, different people needed different things. And I thought if I could help companies figure out which employees would want certain types of volunteering over another, they could be much more efficient about landing people in the right volunteering and then be able to have them in volunteering that they're really going to stick with versus do one time. And started really looking for patterns to say, how could I predict with these 10 people which volunteering opportunity I should give them? And that's when I started to realize that there were these different psychological drivers um, around purpose and that people actually um, are wired uh, to have certain preferences when it comes to fulfillment. So, so I started you, to see that. So yeah. did you just, so, sorry, did you just then sit down and start researching this then? Is that what yeah. happened? I mean, you just kind of just started digging into, you asked these questions and then essentially you were like, let me go and find this answer. Yep. So what I typically do when I'm doing this kind of work is I, Come up with a hypothesis that's usually like in the right ballpark but wrong um, and i start testing it and finding out uh sort of what's working what's not working until it's able to consistently work um and, and you're doing then, by testing how are you doing testing are you just doing thought experiments or are you uh, it's a it's a range you can do thought experiments i would uh talk to individuals and see if i could ask so you do interviews project. right got it you could do interviews it could be i'd do a workshop with 30 people and see if i could create um uh, an experience that way. Uh, I would look at data that we had in the Tapper database and see if I could look for clusters of words um, that were showing up on people's profiles. Um, so it's sort of a wide range of inputs. Um, and then I also, in this case, looked at hundreds and thousands of purpose statements that individuals had done working with coaches, working um, you know, in a, uh, an environment where it's sort of a, a, a service-based environment where you're coming up with a personal purpose statement. And I started looking for patterns for the trends I had seen where those showing up as well and what people are articulating as purpose statements and trying to find the connection. What were, can you, do you mind sharing if it's not, if you don't mind, like gen sure. general, like what were you, what, what were you finding? What are some general patterns that you found? I'm, I'm, fa I'm fascinated by this. I think, I mean, there's a multiple variables. I'm not to go into all of them. I'll give you one that's a pretty uh, straightforward one, which what we found is actually a, a difference uh, between people who find an impact from helping an individual. So think about, Mark Allen, you're, you, know, you help a given patient and a sort of um, sense of fulfillment from helping that person versus people who tend to get more fulfillment from being much more, say, the, uh, the head of a hospital or a clinic. Um, they really enjoy the process of uh, organizational creation. Um, building institutions, uh, building teams, and that's really where they get their primary meaning. And then finally, people who really gain the most meaning when they feel like their work's connected to a broader social movement and they need to feel um, like their work matters beyond just any one patient or one hospital. And that these are not just sort of, um, you know, these aren't things of like, you get as you get more senior, you like to have one or the other. It's actually found there's differences in people's psychology that causes them to have one of those that's dominant over the others. So if you know that you're gaining the most fulfillment at an individual level, that really changes how you should approach your career. Um, if you are someone who really gets that uh, fulfillment from building organizations and helping teams, uh, that's a whole other path. And then if you're someone who um, is more at a societal level, um, you know, again, you look at your career very differently. And for example, with your career, sir, um, you know, there's a lot of people who are doctors who just the simple act of helping a patient, um, you know, and seeing five, 10, 600, however many patients you see a day is deeply fulfilling in of itself. And there's others who get the itch and say, you know what, there's like, I see these bigger problems in society and I want to go invest and help, you know, with fundamental social justice issues in medicine, or I want to help be part of the research to find a cure for something. Um, they're not, for them, it's not as fulfilling just to help a patient and they get the itch to do more. And I'm sure you can relate to that. Um, given your work yeah, of um, course. with your colleagues, sort of how some people really just do love being a doctor straight up, straight down, seeing patients. But a lot of people go through medical school and realize it's not the serving of patients isn't the fundamental thing that, that moves them. Right. I mean, that certainly was my case as well. I, I mean, obviously yep. this is hence me starting a nonprofit and hence me going and traveling and doing all the work that I do. So, but then exactly. you, you started creating these heuristics, right? Then, or these yep. ability to kind of, 
so I have two two questions here that are somewhat divergent. But one is, what makes one person different from the other? I imagine that's just the neural networking of of their brain. Because you may have two siblings that you would figure whose genes would be somewhat similar, but just kind of the way that the neural networks of the brain uh, uh, kind of lay themselves out is, I would imagine, is what makes one person who would be, let's say, using the doctor example, would be satisfied with seeing a patient, you know, you know, seeing twenty patients a day. I look at my colleagues who see 20 patients a day and I'm like, how do you do that? Like, I can't, yeah. you know, I do that once a week and it's at the end of the day, I'm like, all right, done with this. I need to go and do more, you know, some of my other work that I do. Um, and so is, is that just down to neural networks? Uh, do we, do we have that level of research down? We don't have that level of research. What we know and what we've seen are patterns um, that are more, I would say like a psychological level. So, for example, one of the key variables here um, appears to be around one's ability to process um, sort of extreme emotions. Um, people who tend to be able to help individuals day in and day out um, have the ability to process that kind of human interaction in those um, types of emotional situations and aren't completely and utterly like drained and obliterated by it. Um, right. Whereas many of us, like myself, like that to me is just so completely and utterly emotionally overwhelming right. um, that it's not something I could do sustainably. Uh, another piece tends to be really around the kinds of patterns that people see in the world. Uh, people who are individually oriented tend to see patterns inside people. Uh, people who are organization tend to see naturally patterns, uh, um, not inside people, but between people. And then people who are more societal um, tend to see uh, more patterns between groups of people. Um, and that's sort of how they just how they see the world. It's how they process it. Right. And therefore, it causes them to have greater insights. Those are two examples of some of the inputs that uh, inform the type of impact you want to have. And none of them are like 100% on social uh, of, science. Of course, of course. I totally, these are just, you know, big, big heuristics with a lot of like yep. gray. Let me ask you this. Are, are the folks that go into teaching and the folks that go into nursing, do they have like a similar like profile to a certain degree? I mean, cause there was something that you said that, that made me think that, that the, those that go into nursing, those that go into teaching, cause they seem to be, you know, similar, not obviously the work is different, but that ability to kind of manage that high level emotional sort of work that th those seem to be, you know, t two peas in a pot, I suppose is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. I mean, I, you definitely would see, it's not like exclusively, but you would definitely of course. see bias there towards those folks. I think you, a lot of people go into some of these professions because their mother or their father did, or it's the only profession they really knew or understood, or they sure. got inspired by someone um, that may actually not be all that um, indicative of who they are. Um, they may also, for example, go into nursing and find they actually don't like nursing itself, but they love running a nursing unit right. um, at a hospital. Right. right? Um, so you see some variation there as well. Um, you see it with teachers as well, where there's some teachers that really love working one on one, um, others who really uh, prefer, you know, curriculum development or running a school and they start moving more in that direction. You know, every time I've taught, I spend most of my time on the curriculum and I generally am not terribly interested in the students, for right, example, right. Um, which is, you know, from a value standpoint, I totally value them, but I just notice where my energy goes. Right. 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 So you essentially then created this platform. I mean, you, you went yep. out, you, you did, you did the research, you created this platform and then you created this business imperative, uh, which more information huh? can be found at imperative.com. Uh, you wrote the book, the purpose economy, and then essentially now you're interfacing with, uh, or interacting with businesses and, and the, the value or the product that you are, uh, providing to these businesses is essentially helping their workers or their employees find purpose in their work? Is that, is that correct? Yeah. It's a, I mean, you nailed it earlier. I think it's really there's a paradigm shift between sort of paternalistic workforce, which is about the organization providing for you, um, and it's shifting now to more of a uh, sense of autonomy and that people need to drive and create their own careers. Right. Um, it's a major shift. And with that, all the old tools that were used inside organizations are pretty uh, – they're yeah. less and less relevant because they have that paternalistic right. model. Right. Um, and, you know, what's ha what's at the core of the new model is uh, personal self-awareness because people can't really navigate their careers if they're driving blind. They have no idea who they are. So, you know, we're really that first step in the transformation, which is helping your people know who they are and just feel like there's a sense of hope and agency around uh, defining their path forward and how they want to grow to align with their purpose. Right. And then, and, uh, uh, and you would then, 
I mean, so how does the, they like, is there like a, are there like surveys that they take or yeah. are they like there, there's tools and did you create these tools as well? So, um, it's an online platform where someone comes in, the company signs up, we enter a bunch of information from the company. The employee takes about a 15 minute assessment online and then um, that generates a profile for them and they can then see how their profile compares to others. They can develop team reports so they can look at the diversity of purpose on their team. Um, they can uh, work on a development plan to figure out how do I master my purpose, not just what is my purpose, but how can I be an unstoppable badass at that purpose? Um, they can develop a purpose statement. They can download a hero poster for their purpose. So just sort of a lot of different activities around discovery, activation, and leadership around purpose. Um, and what so are sort of the platforms? Yeah. And what are some outcomes that you're able to measure as a result of this? Like, how are you able to show that people are able to create their purpose, and then ultimately that the company is able to take that as some sort of value for themselves? Yeah, I mean, we've done research around purpose inside purpose in general. So there's two different answers. There's sort of general, which is we've done studies around when people embrace purpose, what it does in terms of performance, tenure, like all the things individuals and companies care about. And, you know, our colleagues have done research on companies that embrace purpose and how much more successful they are than those that don't. So there's like an overall business case that's already been established by us and our colleagues. Um, in terms of our specific platform, uh, you know, the research we did found that there were these different stages to embracing purpose. Uh, it starts with the desire to even want it. Um, then it's the belief that it's possible to have purpose. Then it's self-awareness about uh, your purpose. And then it starts moving into activating it in the day-to-day -day basis, aligning it with your organization, starting to have courage to stand up for things, even when it's not convenient. And then ultimately being able to innovate around it. So when we look at measurement, what we're looking at largely is, um, are we helping people move down that adoption curve? Um, to become purpose-driven leaders. Wow! And then, uh, and and uh, and from that, uh, you're finding that the businesses are finding that they're uh, uh, that they they are having success. Then, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's still like we haven't been around for decades, but um, and the work that but we in have the done, short period got, of time, yeah, yeah, we've got about a little over a hundred companies using the platform, and you know, we continue to learn and make it better every every quarter. Uh, but, you know, we've seen it really help bring hope to people, help people realize their value in the world, help people see that work can be about more than just a paycheck. Um, it's really inspiring to see these stories happen within organizations. Right. I think that the, the um, I heard you once say, uh, I think that was really, which really kind of piqued my interest to have you on air, actually, in line of what you were just saying was that you were also, I think once I heard you say that you were fascinated by people who said, thank God it's Friday. Like, why is yep. it that society dictates that work is a bad thing? Uh, and, and, and I think that goes back to that paternalistic kind of approach where the worker, where the work defined the worker rather than the worker defined the work. Is it, you know, I don't mean to paraphrase you, but is that? No, that's right. That's right. I mean, TGI Friday is, I think, such a toxic part of our culture. Uh -huh. um, especially since we spend so much time at work and it's sort of a, it develops a brand and experience that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, and I've been sort of on a TGIM kick of saying how to get people to say, thank God it's Monday, right. which is not to say you don't love your weekend, but why are we running from work? And it all goes back to, and again, given your social justice bent, um, if you think about the early agrarian economy, and the rise yeah. Of yeah, yeah, go agrarian ahead. economy, when it all first started, it's, um, you know, most of the people that had quote unquote jobs were not jobs. They were serfs and slaves. Right. Um, and then work sort of evolved out of that. So no wonder we don't like work. Sure. Sure. Do you, and I think I may, I think when, uh, sometime, uh, in the recent past when, and when I heard you talk about that, I, I think I may have asked, or I wanted to ask is that, um, when you look at some of these worker co-ops is, are these worker co-ops successful because people do feel like there's purpose in the work that they do? Cause it's shared. It, does that make sense? Am I, 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 uh, yeah. So I think about like an uh, REI is a great example. And I interviewed their CEO a couple of years ago. Okay. Um, REI, which is the uh, sort of outdoor uh, camping and yeah. hiking. Yeah. So they're hiking. a member. Exactly. And they're a co-op membership model. So their customers are members and their employees are members. And um, they truly are passionate about the topic of outdoor, uh, being outdoors. They're, they're both customers and members. And there's a, um, there's a sense that it's not about sort of a couple of people getting wealthy. It's about, uh, being part of a community and it's about um, serving the membership. And I think you get a very different kind of culture as a result of it because people feel a sense of ownership 
um, which is really what a lot of this is about. It's a sense of ownership. Work doesn't happen to you. Um, work is something you choose to do and you create for yourself. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, uh, it's really it's fascinating stuff, uh, and I would imagine more information about this can be found at your book, The Purpose Economy. And again, more information about what you do can be found at imperative.com. Before I let you go, Aaron, uh, you had mentioned at the very beginning of the uh, of our interview, we talked you talked about something called the values inventory, and you said that for your values inventory, freedom was something that you cherished. Can you explain to me what a values inventory is and why for you freedom is something that's so important to you and and i would just ask like what are other types of, like would a values inventory for me like be like justice i mean would that be something that i would that you would predict that i would uh uh would be my values inventory yeah so the way a values inventory is done it usually starts with about 200 values just roughly how many values are common and it's basically a process of just cut it like saying okay if you could only have half of these which half would you get rid of and you cross off you're down to 100 and then you do that again and again and again until you get down to like four or five, and then at the end of the day, you end up with like, you know, two, maybe three that are called your core values. These are the things that like are so viscerally important to you. Um, and they range from, you know, there's a wide range of what values are. I mean, from family is a value, community is a value. Uh, you know, my first value is freedom. My second one is humor. So humor is a value as well, right? So to me, on my deathbed, like, I just hope I don't lose a sense of humor. Like, that's such an important thing to me. Life without humor to me is not a life worth living. Um, and a life without freedom is the same way. So those are sort of part of that that measure. Um, part of what's interesting about them is you start to then also appreciate and understand people. Like right now we're so polarized as a society, um, but the reality is we actually share a lot of these values. And if we can figure out the values of someone that we think we don't agree with, we probably can find um, sort of a forward together. Um, right now it's also jumbled in a mess that um, we don't know how to talk to each other anymore. Yeah, I totally agree with you. So it's, you know, I, you know, I am generally a very progressive person, but freedom is, you know, my top value. And as a result, there are topics that like traditionally progressive people would have a different point of view on than me because I'm an optimized freedom over some other values that they might find more important. Um, but if they understand that that's where it's coming from, for me, um, it can be a conversation less about judgment and more about celebrating the diversity of values. Great. Aaron Hurst is the foremost expert on the science of purpose at work and in 2014 brought global awareness to the rise of the fourth economic era in history, the purpose economy, which was, of course, turned into his book, The The Purpose Economy, that was published in 2014. He's the CEO and co-founder of of Imperative, the technology platform for leaders in the new economy. Previously, as the founder of Taproot Foundation, Aaron catalyzed the $15 billion pro bono service market. He is a third-generation graduate of the University of Michigan. More information about him uh, can be found in imperative.com. And then he tweets at Aaron underscore Hertz. That's Aaron, A-A-R-O-N underscore A. H-U-R-S-T. Aaron, it's such a pleasure. Thank you so much. As you really, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You really were very generous with your time and, and really helping me understand the work that you do. Thank you so much, and we'll be in touch. Absolutely. Thank Keep you. on doing what you do. Thank you so much. Uh, you are listening to 102.3 WHIVLP, and I have the great Kenny Francis, who just walked in, so we're going to be starting uh, a resistance radio in just a moment. Uh, before we do, uh, we're going to just uh, go to uh, some uh, quick transitions, and we'll be right back. <laughs> 